This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. From the first season out of third, what has been the, the most exciting thing for you to see the show develop from the pilot to the end of the third season? Because you, know, you can talk about that. Yeah, I would say um, it all started with this cast and seeing this cast push themselves to, to sillier and yet also uh, more devastating emotional places. Like you know, I think of the ending of the season three with Chidi and Eleanor, and then I think of how they met just him walking through the front door in that pilot, and it's such a journey. And to see how all of that has just, tracked, I get emotional even talking about it. Yeah. What has been the most fun for you going from the pilot to now in your character's evolution? Well, I'd never acted before the pilot, so uh, it was uh, knowing that that wouldn't be the first and last time I ever act. I can't believe I made it through four seasons opposite Ted Danson. Um, and to watch the way that we've all changed and watch the way that we've all grown and learned and like we now know about philosophy in a way that we didn't know before and we've touched so many people, not literally, we haven't done anything illegal, uh, we have emotionally moved so many people all around the world, like there's nowhere I go where people don't recognise our show, which is extraordinary. So how, uh, for season four, have you asked the producers how far you can push your evilness? Well, um... Uh, by way of evil, Sean is maximum Derek. Uh, Sean's at, at 11 most of the time, I feel. Um, but it, uh, you know, th- I, I don't want to blow your minds. Things happen in season four. It's, uh, it's exciting. Uh, daring moves are made. And, um, yeah, Sean's, uh, Sean's a demon. Sean's a bad dude. Don't be Sean. What was your reaction when you read the montage scene for season three, your goodbye? If I... I was excited to read it because it felt very earned. It felt like a wonderful moment to infuse into a comedy show. Like, no, we're actually going to stop down just for about 90 seconds and show this love language. Um, It was also fun to shoot because we got to shoot all these, like, montage sequences we'd never shot. Remember, we were out in the boat and we got stuck and Mm -hmm. all those fun things. Um, But it was, I'll tell you something, it was sad to shoot. Yeah. When we were sitting there having to watch our love story unfold and then break apart. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was a real thump to the Adam's apple, you know? It's like, <laughs> you're just sort of like, oh, oh, no. Um, but, yeah, it's, I feel like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a really, life can be that way. You know, you finally kind of get to a place where you, you know, are settled and then the rug is completely ripped out from under you. And I feel like that is just like a, a, a perfect like sort of like metaphor for how things can be and to sort of like really appreciate those moments when you when you have them and so uh yeah it was it was it was tough but i feel like it was just such a an appropriate thing to do what was the uh how has it been for you because your character's always been linked together you, the arc from the pilot to the end of season three which i know you're allowed to talk about how has it been for you your developing of your relationship well, it's a blast. I mean, I'm, I, I lucked out because my first TV show, I get to be, <laughs> my character gets to be best friends with Ted Danson, right? So that, I mean, with Michael, which means Darcy gets to hang out with Ted Danson all the time, which is a dream come true and has fulfilled me and fulfilled my life and fulfilled my career. I'm, I'm so lucky and, and not a second has been lost on me. Does that make sense? I'm, yeah. no, no, seriously. No, 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 seriously. <laughs> so I lucked out in that department because I, ju- I just get to hang out and, and 
become friends and watch and learn from this dude. I love I love that that after about two or three weeks I can well I confessed this a year after the fact, right. but about two or three weeks into the first season I thought, oh poor Darcy, she's just gonna play this one-dimensional <laughs> computer. Oh, she's going to get so bored. And look, I get to be a demon, you know. And here she is with a, an arsenal of about 40 characters she plays every day. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. So we're going to go to some little Captain Marvel. All right. All right. Uh, so, Captain, what was your initial reaction when you first read the script? Uh, awesome. <laughs> when I first got the call for the job, actually, it was just unbelievable. Like, the chance to bring Marvel's first female superhero to life and to have the opportunity to do that, especially from an art standpoint, and build that world. And then when I read the script and found out it was set in the 90s, it was heaven. <laughs> okay, so now you love the script, you think it's awesome, and now you have to work. <laughs> you have to actually make it happen. Yeah. What was the most challenging trying to you know, work on that film? Oh. Shoot. Uh, there were definitely a lot of challenges. Um, I think Blockbuster and doing that entire strip mall, because we had to do all of the storefronts going all the way down and build around the corner, and then she had the chase scene. So having to build all those out and make sure they were period correct and that it felt real to the audience, uh, I think was, was definitely a challenge. Um, in addition to that, uh, doing, I, I got to do the drop crash, uh, the drop ship crash oh, at the end of the movie yeah. with Jude Law. Um, and so that, we were basically in the middle of nowhere, three and a half hours outside of L.A. and figuring out the resources and making that happen. I mean, we had a great crew, a fantastic construction crew and greens crew that brought that to life and made it feel real, I think. And when you have a big budget movie like this, it must be a, a very interesting relationship between you, the visual arts, VEX artists, like all the different. How was it working with the visual effects, trying to see that world, and you have to blend the two worlds, live action and the you know, CGI? I, I think the biggest challenge in that is just knowing what they need to deliver their, their digital half. So it's, it's kind of that, that teamwork of we're going to give you our half, you're going to finish it off in your half, and uh, just making sure that it's a cohesive design, um, I think. Uh, yeah, the biggest challenge is just m making sure those things can marry and having clear lines of communication between departments. Okay, so I see something about Birds of Prey. Yes. Uh, I will not ask for any plot spoilers, right. but her character, Harley Quinn, is kind of chaotic. Yes. Uh, so does that mean the set production design and everything else has to be equally chaotic? I will say that uh, the production designer, K.K. Barrett, definitely came in and did, if you know any of his work, he's, he's done some amazing things over the years, uh, including her. Um, he definitely brought his spin to it, and I think uh, it's, it's definitely a new and exciting Gotham, and uh, I think it'll be really cool uh, for the audience to see that, because I, I think it... He, what he brought to it is he gave Gotham Harley's lens, mm -hmm. so it's it's definitely seen more. You're seeing more of her world, which usually we're seeing more Bruce Wayne's world. So I think that'll be a fun new experience for the audience. Well, all right. So what was your initial reaction when you first got brought onto the project of Westworld? 
You know, I was told very little about Westworld. I got a phone call and they said it was a sci-fi meets cowboy western, kind of like the Truman Show, but we can't tell any more about it. And, you know, half the time when I get calls for jobs, they give us very little information. You know, they, they can't disclose a lot over the phone until we sign that NDA and get in there. So I signed up because I, I knew the art director. I thought, okay, let's see what this one's like. And I drove on to, the first season was shot on a spot called Melody Ranch in Los Angeles. And you're driving down the highway, you get to Melody Ranch, you pull off the highway, dirt road, old western, that, that back lot has actually been there for decades. It's, they've shot so many really great movies there. Um, so my first impression was, oh man, where am I now? This isn't Los Angeles anymore. I'm, I'm on set of a western and our art department was in a double wide trailer behind one of the old western facades. So you, you know, got up onto the little uh, uh, porch and open the door like, howdy everybody. And you know, that was every day going to work. So it was pretty awesome. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because you have a blended genre. You have an Old West, but a futuristic and a TV show. What was kind of some of the challenges of trying to create some of that look? Well, our art department was kind of split in two. We had certain set designers working on the Western, and we had certain set designers, myself, working on all of the more sci-fi environments. Um, so to some degree, we were working in tangent with each other, but separately because truly they needed to seem like two different worlds. It was the behind the scenes and then it was the in front of camera Western. So um, yeah, it was great. I, one of our uh, set designers, Phil Toolin, was a hand drafter and he would hand draft all those details for the saloons. Meanwhile, I'm 3D modeling and creating all of these sort of highly technical sci-fi environments. So it was, you know, honestly our behind the scenes is very similar to the show. <laughs> So theoretically, working for, let's say, a Marvel movie might have helped prepare you for Westworld? Yes, and it did, because I worked on Captain America Civil War, and that was a lot of prisons, and it was a lot of labs, and it was very sort of high-tech sci-fi, and it was a great lead-up to it. <laughs> All right, so we're going to go We're gonna go to Kong Skull Island. Okay. Uh, what was your first reaction when you read the script? Um, the script was actually very fast-paced and fascinating, um, and it also just... It was, there was so much of action. There was so many things happening. Uh, and, like, it was just, there was, every minute had something happening in it. So that was kind of exciting when I read it. And I was just, I was kind of curious then to see how it would, you know, convert to the screen. And I think it was a pretty fun action-based movie when it came out. Uh, so what would you say was the biggest challenge for you? So on that, I was, um, I was in a, less of a position so I suddenly like I was an assistant art director on that one and it was my first show like big show um, and before I had done a lot of like independent and I had designed and you know um, art directed and on smaller scale movies and this was my first big one so the actually the in the reel they showed um, the the skull the, the boneyard mm -hmm. that's my set so I was basically handed this set um, and the designer was like, here, this is your set now, take care of it. And then, of course, he would like come in and check in and make sure that it was fine. But it was, you know, we had to choreograph all the action. So I worked with the action teams, you know, the, the stunt people to do that. And also it was like working with construction very heavily to make sure that the bones look aged. I mean, we had a 40-foot skull and like 60 feet bones. So, you know, it was putting that all into the ground. I was, it was in Hawaii, so we were on location for six months trying to get that done. So it was, it was exciting and challenging all at once and very scary.
So uh, six months in Hawaii is pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I didn't want to come back. All right, so switching gears to Avatar 2 and 3, which I know you can't say anything legally about, but is it a different process doing something like that because it is a very heavy CGI? Exactly. It is. I think on a process level, it's taught me a lot. Um, and a lot of what I deal with is process. Um, and it is CG heavy, but it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome when it comes out. Uh, we'll go back to Fruitvale Station. We're going because your early days. Uh, what was the what was your initial reaction when you first read that script? I mean, I cried. It was a beautiful script. It was. I related to it. It was sweet and sad and tragic and sometimes even funny. But it was. You know, I just needed to do. I knew I, I knew I needed to do that film. Obviously, you didn't have a big budget on that one. Uh, what were the challenges of trying to do the production design for a, a very virtually independent film? You know, at that point, that's all I had been doing. So, you know, I didn't look at it necessarily as challenges. It was just like, you got to learn how to be resourceful and make the money stretch. And, and, I, and I was doing what I was used to doing. So, um, looking back at it, you know, the, the challenge really was to uh, create just the spaces that we needed, to find them, to create them, so that Ryan could do what he needed with the camera work, and you know what I mean? We could kind of tell the story that we wanted to tell, but still controlling the color story. Yeah. Now, you had, a, a, if I'm not mistaken, a slightly bigger budget for Black Panther. It slightly? Was, <laughs> it wasn't much bigger, though. I don't remember it being bigger. I think I only had one other person with me on that, too. So I'm assuming there were different challenges trying to mix the visual effects and joining that team to give a consistent look. You know, working on, it was, it's not different though. It's just on paper you have more money, you know, but I still had to figure out how to make it work because, you know, inevitably the more money you have, the more things you want, you know, and it's bigger. So now it's like, well, now... Oh, we're looking at the number, and we can build the whole city. Maybe we can, maybe we can't. You know, we can build a whole block of a town and stuff like that. So there's, there's more that you're doing. But creatively, it must have been really exciting to be able to create this whole new world. Oh, yeah. That was, I mean, you kind of are paralyzed at first because, because of that. Because you're sort of like, I can really, like, this. I'm free. You know, I'm free to, to do this. And then... You're like, all right, no, no, because, you, you know, it's not the police station in Boston. It's not the things that the hospital corridor, how many have we seen of those, you know? And I kind of reacted, my reaction to that was research and understanding and giving the world rules for me to break. I needed to rebel against something, but there wasn't anything there, so I had to create something you know, to rebel against. And that's what I did, you know, in some aspects. It was a wonderful movie. Thank you so much. So let's go back to some Black Lightning. Yeah. What was your, did you read the script first or were you shown the episode first? No, uh, we read the script first. I'm a real big uh, proponent of reading the scripts and uh, I want to 
I want to start from where the producer started, you know, which is with the written page. And I guess because my my uh, big brother Ralph Farquhar is a writer, and he's always said, "Yeah, you got to read these scripts, brother. Get into it and, and see where it really came from." And I I always like to see that journey from from the written page to what actually happened. You know, I mean, so many people will become involved, and you get the the actor bringing their character to it. You have the 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 director and his vision, and you have. The uh, uh, right down to the cinematographer and just how he composes the shot and the textures and all of this. This all of that informs what I do with the music, you know. And I'm trying to respond to and be and be deeply inside and uh, uh, of the of the picture and what's happening on on screen. Uh, now, if we talk about TV, scoring for TV versus features, do you want to know the arc of the season, or do you want to take it by episode by episode? Well, <clears throat> I have to know some of the arc of the season. There's certain things that I do have to know, but I'm a firm believer in finding it out at the last minute, you know, because as composer, our job is to tell you what to feel, you know, and I want to... if. If you see the same thing, if I walk in a room and, 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 and some guy starts start shooting, you know, and then another guy comes in and he starts the shooting, and the first time you, you're really shocked, you know, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then the second time you may look maybe a little less so about it. The third time it's happening, you're trying to figure out only how do I get out of here, you know. And, and so it becomes more mental at that time. I want to react. I want to, I want to explode onto the screen and if it's a startling thing, I want to startle you. If it's, you know, emotional, I want to give you the deepest emotions of first love. Not not 20 years later love. I want to, that's a very different thing. And so that's what I'm trying to trying to do is be, remain as close to the initial moments as possible. So if you don't see the script, you don't you're not seeing the setup and the payoff. For the multiple seasons. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We're going to go back to a show I really like first, Pushing Daisies. Uh, so what was unique about that show, working on that show compared to others? Well, it's an adult fantasy world, and there was really nothing like that on the air, or really has been since. Um, there's magic in this world, and it's not for children, it's for adults, and I think that's what made it really special. And what, was there any unique challenges to doing the score for that one, or...? Everything about that score was difficult. Um, I had six days to do each episode, and I can only write 30 seconds of that every hour, so that meant I'd have to spend 16 hours a day, six days a week, to write the score to do 42 minutes. And then on the seventh day, I would watch the next week's episode in the morning with Brian Fuller, and then conduct at night the previous week's episode, and then we would start the cycle over again. Super difficult. So is in the case of series unfortunate events, is that a little easier, different schedule, work schedule for you or approach? Well, here's the difference is with a series of unfortunate events, we're not limited by broadcast time. Mm. So the episodes won't stop at 42 minutes. They will go to 45 and 50 and 55. So um, there can actually be much more music in a series of unfortunate events. But the schedule uh, was enough that I could actually do it in a very reasonable way, I, about half I would have to write about half as much music every day as what I did on Pushing Daisies. Obviously, we talked. We were a season ago. We talked a season ago. Was a, what was the, what's special about the next season? Okay, well, you know, whatever, season three, my favorite thing so far has been we worked a Verdi opera into one of the episodes, oh. into Penultimate Peril. And my wife is the voice of Morena Baccarin, who plays uh, one of our characters on the show. Yeah, so... She lip-synced to a recording, and then my wife replaced her as the opera voice in the show. 
So that was great to work together and then take all of the Verity and then incorporate it into the narrative. Super challenge. Uh, so we're going to start with Game of Thrones. Uh, the Long Night. All right, so one of the things we noticed that in Game of Thrones, they use music and sound in a very interesting way. Right. You know, I know Miguel likes no sound a lot, only the music. How was doing that final score, especially working the music and the sound and the mixing for that final big sequence with Arya? Uh, it, it, was, uh, it was challenging. I mean, it was the hardest uh, episode we've ever done on Game of Thrones. Um, specifically, like, all the, the battle stuff, uh, finding the balance between the music and the sound. Uh, it, w- it was hard because uh, Ramin, he had scored different versions of, of, of the score. Um, and then when we started mixing it, we found there, there were so many things that were the really difficult to register, to cut through some of the, the sounds of the whites climbing the walls and everything. Um, so he had to sort of go back and rework some, some things. And when we went and mixed it again, um, it had more of a sort of a more, more of a relentless feel to the score for the whole battle. Um, and then I think you're referring to the the musical montage at the end, yeah, which yeah. which is probably one of the most beautiful things I think, like Ramin's ever scored. And the thing is, usually I know, especially in shows and sound mixing, their their attitude is always go for more sound effects, go for the loud. Right. And it seems like in your show they want silence and music. Yeah, which is great. And and I, I have to give credit to our show runners, uh, David and Dan. They uh, they really understand how music works. Um, they they know what what uh, you know how the what underscore is supposed to do, and so they really have a lot of faith in Ramin to 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 let him you know write what he needs to write that's going to help tell the story, but also um, just be have great themes that are memorable and beautiful. And just as, just as a fan, I'm curious, uh, the workers on Game of Thrones, what was your reaction when you found out Arya was the one that kills the Night King? Um, the first thing I thought was I can't. I just I, my my mind jumps straight to I can't wait until till everyone sees this moment and and because I, I inside I just jumped up I was like yes that's so cool. All right, we're gonna flip uh, so Stranger Things. Yeah. Now you have an eighty genre yeah. blended music. So is there what are the challenges of doing a show like that which has a blended genre set in the eighties? Um, well, it's it's very different because obviously for obvious reasons, but uh, also. Um, you know the way the two composers work, Ramin, uh, from uh, from a very traditional orchestral standpoint, to um, Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein, who have this uh, you know very heavy synthesizer-based score, and and you know come from a background of uh, being a live band, performing band. Um, so those challenges are different in in, in our in our workflow scenarios. Um, I I think that you know. Um, the, uh, otherwise, you know, we it all it, it does all come down to. Um, Making the music work best for helping the show move, to help telling the story, and all that kind of stuff. Um, with the '80s stuff, it's um, it, for me, it's just a, it's a refreshing change. Um, we actually were mixing Game of Thrones um, the same time we were mixing the sound for Stranger oh, wow. Things, and they're right across the street from each other. So fortunately, I was able to just run across and run back and forth and be like, "I'll be right, o- I'll be right over. I got to go just do a quick fix on on the other show." Um, so that was uh, a fun, a fun adventurous. You didn't accidentally slip some eighties music in the Game of Thrones, and they complained. No, <laughs> no, no. It's funny that the showrunners are fans of each other's show too. So it was, was kind of nice that I knew they knew what I was doing and, and where I was going. And so I'll be, I'll be right back. And they're like, no spoilers. <laughs> well, thanks so much for talking with us.
Clarita Diet. Yes. So what was uh, your reaction when you first read the script? What drew you to want to you know, be a part of the story? I actually got the call from Drew oh, to do the show better? because we worked together on Never Been Kissed mm-hmm. and Romy and Michelle many, many years ago and had a good relationship and she was like, I really, this is her coming back from kind of a hiatus. Uh, she had children, got married and uh, she's like, I'm going to go back and produce this show and star in this show and wanted to have somebody who really, you know, she trusts and uh, I got that call and I read the script and I was like wow this is something super cool and different that I've never done before I mean zombies wow (laughs) lots of blood body parts flying around so how do you prepare for that lots of multiples (laughs) so it sounds like you have to create your own rules for the world as far as costumes you do you do because you know it, it, it all starts with like collaborating with the other departments because you have to know how many blood how much blood there's going to be how many body pieces are going to fly out and around Uh, we have to be prepared for all kinds of different goos I don't know if you remember there was a scene when she actually uh, gets the disease of being zumpy when she throws up that was quite phenomenal how much of vomit there was I mean seriously I've never seen that much vomit and then it started to smell after a couple of days when they left it on stage. It was pretty bad. <laughs> and another piece of work, Enchanted, uh, Amy Adams. And it was interesting because you had to blend animation with live, live action. action. So what, what's the process of collaborating on something like that? Because you've got to create a costume that works for the other departments too. Right. Well, what was great on that movie that I got to be uh, on this movie from the very beginning oh. of preparation and I actually work with the 2D animators the old hand-drawn animation you know Disney animation and work with them creating the costumes because we knew we had to create them in live action so it wasn't that I was copying them I was working with them designing them because I I mean my thing was Amy Adams has got to look great in a dress later that was the most important thing Uh, but what was fun about that was really creating these costumes from these like cartoons, and when you really think of cartoons, they have very weird proportions. Like mm-hmm. if you think of uh, the dress, it has a tiny, tiny waist, and a yeah. princess dress has a tiny, tiny waist, big sleeves. So it's great and easy to draw this, but then how do you make it on Amy Adams, who is running around New York, uh, you know, streets and uh, Times Square? So it really was momentous. I mean, the dress weighed maybe about 30 pounds. It had hundreds and hundreds of yards of fabric, you know, but we had to make it so big so then we had the proportion of the animated characters of the tiny waist and the big sleeves. And that was because we wanted to have her look like a doll. So, you know, it's phenomenal. And then working with um, the other characters that were transformation from 2D animation to live action, like Susan Sarandon, a Maleficent character, actually went from the drawing to live action to then CGI dragon turning into the dragon, you know. So also continuity of all the colors and design and textures was really important. So I'm working with the 2D animators, but also the CGI artists who are creating the dragon to make sure that the scale and the color and all the metal work that I did turns into all the pieces of the dragon, like the horns and the wings of the dragon. So it sounds like for something like this to work, the script better be darn good for all these different areas to be able to collaborate and pull this off. It better. 
Premier B. That's what I have to say. Yeah, with a lot of pressure there, a lot of pressure there. But, you know, it's so much fun. I mean, that's what's really, I think, you know, costume design is such a creative job because you are also faced with challenges all the time. You know, you have these ideas, but sometimes you don't know how to make them and how to implement them. So, you you know, you, you're gathering all the other artists and fabric makers and boot makers and pattern makers and metal workers and, you know, all these people coming together to create this, which is phenomenal. And then, of course, you have a director who is kind of on top of, all, you know, the food chain and, you know, it's his vision that we're also collaborating with, you know, so we have to navigate his ideas as well and then sometimes navigate ideas of actors because they may have their own little ideas of what to wear, what color they like, or maybe they're allergic to something, you never know. <laughs> so we're going to talk about your show, Jessica Jones. Yeah. So, what was? But we're going back to the beginning. What was your initial reaction when you first read the script? It made you want to be part of the show. You know, I first saw season one and I loved it. I didn't realize it was a, a written and directed by all women. So, Melissa Rosenberg, when I met with her and Raelle Tucker for when I interviewed for the second season, I was thrilled to hear that they were going to have all women directors again, which is kind of a novel idea, but given the material that Melissa wrote for Jessica Jones, which is, you know, it's a female-driven show about her inner life and her struggles, which I think, you know, of course a male director could interpret, but it was a different way of working, which I appreciated, but I loved the show when I saw it. I thought it was interesting, and from a psychological standpoint, it wasn't just about an action figure who busts through walls. There was, there was more happening in the layering of her internal life. What is a talented production designer, or, or do you have to do, is there, how many like regular sets are there, or how many new sets you got to do on a weekly basis? Right. So for season two, when I interviewed with them, they did tell me that there were going to be new sets to establish in season two, which made it much more appealing and interesting to me because that was that's always the kind of the the hesitation in going on to a show that has been established already. But uh, Hogarth's apartment was a new set, and I loved that was a lot of fun, and um, so. I knew early on, before I started the job, that that was going to have, the whole season was going to have some new stuff to design. And it was fun to design for stunts, too, which I'd never done before. Yeah, you know, knowing that someone's going to come through the wall or have to get thrown out a window, and to figure out what, what does that space look like, knowing that that's what's going to happen. That means me that you're coordinating with a different department now, the stunt coordinator, trying to figure this all out together. Absolutely. So it was a stunt coordinator, special effects. We were very tight for the whole season. There was a lot that we had to work together on. Yeah, it was a, it was a fun collaboration. Now, a slightly different show, Better Call Saul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how is that working on that show different, perhaps, than Jessica Jones? Well, there were less stunts, although there were stunts, but there was less action of, like, things... Um, People coming through walls, that, uh, definitely for that. And uh, it's a different tone. It's it's similar in that it's an internal, it's an internally driven show from the characters. So that was similar, but slightly different approach. So we're gonna go a little BoJack. Okay. Uh, so what was your reaction when you first read the script? When you were first brought onto the project? Okay, uh, I actually do have a an answer for this. I <laughs> I came and I watched the, I didn't read the script. I watched the animatics first. And I could see, you know, it was like rough storyboards timed out. And I was like, holy crap, this made me cry. I was like, just from the storyboards, this has never happened before where like, you know, watching a storyboard, it's made me cry. So 
I get it's really powerful stuff, so I can understand why uh, you know there, it has like a rabid fan base because it still does. I I worked on the first two seasons, and then since then, my husband is the supervising director, so I've watched them, and I was like, damn it, they did it again. Like I'm getting teary eyed and I'm trying to hide it. <laughs> So what are the uh, unique challenges to doing BoJack Horseman? I mean, I know you're emotionally invested, but now you have to actually make it. So what is special about the challenging about that show? I can tell you it's not easy to make a horse head move around in space. <laughs> it's not like a, a person's head where you can like have a simple line where you're redrawing it and you know it's, pr- it's fairly easy. A horse, their face sticks out like this. So when you're moving it around, it's just it makes everything more complicated. And try doing a mouth pack for that, that's way more complicated. And then on top of that, the show is, uh, has a lot of textures. So the text, like moving the textures around and not showing uh, the seams of the textures is really challenging. And it also just makes it difficult to make the movement very fluid. So um, yeah, you're constantly fighting that. It's trying to keep that fluidity in there. You must be fun creatively because there's no rules to your world, but at the same time, you got to create your own rules so you have a world that makes sense. Yeah, well, there actually are a lot of rules. One of the rules um, that Lisa, the art director of Bojack, said was, no tails. She said, they're in in a world with animals and people, but there are no tails. And uh, we had some fan wrote in, and he was like, he wanted us to go back, and even though the the first season had already come out, he wanted us to go back and add tails in and put tails on every, I don't know. It's crazy, like the things that people get obsessed about. But <laughs> so let's go back to the beginning. Uh, we always ask, how were you brought onto the project? How did you initially get onto the project? Well, I was I was brought on to Preacher um, second season, and I had worked with, um, or I had known one of the um, executive producers through some other friends, and he was aware of my work and thought that I would be a good match with both the showrunner um, and the style of the show, being that it was a little out of the box and, you know, a lot of different kind of elements. So he thought I would be a good match for it, and it turned out that we, I love the show, and I was there for three years. Now, what, is, what are some unique challenges of doing a show like this, costume-wise, because you have a, kind of a surreal world, yes. so you have to create your own rules and guidelines, Definitely. but follow your own kind of path. Absolutely. Well... The biggest challenge for me always is that every single one of our characters always has to have many, many multiples because there's always a car chase, there's always a fight, there's always blood, so we constantly have to find multiples. We don't even shop for something. Like, I was never able to use vintage clothing because um, we needed at least four of everything, every costume. Uh, so I'm assuming since it's a weekly show, you have also some serious time constraints, and you're doing yes. four costumes per. Yes, exactly. Yes, we basically do a show every seven to eight days, um, and so we're moving very quickly. And we're always wrapping a show, filming a show, and prepping a show all at the same time. Uh, and talk a little bit. What is it, the process of collaborating with your uh, collaborators, like production designer and the visual effects and DP? How does that process work, especially for a show like this? which has so much stunts and things going on. Well, it's very, very important, particularly for the production designer and the set decorator because they are basically the frame or the, the portrait frame that my costume is going to go into. So I need to make sure that, you know, I, my 
actress isn't wearing a polka dot dress that's going to be on a plaid couch. So we need to dialogue about all of that. I also need to always check in what the colors of the rooms are so that my actors aren't wearing clothes that like will disappear against a wall. So it's very, very important to, to collaborate with them um, as early on as possible so that I don't like come up with all these designs and find out that they're not going to work. So. But it must help that you have awesome scripts every week. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Handmaid's Tale. Yes. So we asked kind of all the artists the same question. Uh, what was your initial reaction when you first got brought into the project? What really drew you to the project? I love Margaret Atwood. And, and oddly enough, I worked on a show just pr prior to going on to Handmaid's that was Alias Grace. Oh. So that summer, it was all things Atwood. <laughs> so, but, yeah. so for you, I mean, it, it is, of course, a, a, a very surreal world, but also ground reality. What is the challenge for you making sure that you can ground the show in reality so people can kind of accept this world as real? Um, I think I try to study the psychology of where these people are at in their arc. And even though we're wearing just teal, just red, uh, I try to individualize everything. Like, for example, the handmaids, they all look the same to the, at the glance, but they're actually quite individual. For example, they all have very different sweaters. The wives, for example, are all in teal, but they have very different tailoring and structure. And depending on who they are in society and what their arc is at that moment, for example, Serena this year has a huge arc, and we take her from one shape to another and one tonality to another. Interesting. So, so each. So, how, do you know all the whole entire season? So, they, how how far ahead do you get to uh, know the story? One episode at a time. <laughs> I have a. They, I get a general beat sheet, which ah. means I kind of have an inkling of what might come up. But often you get the script, and it's completely different from the beat sheet. So, but in some ways, you might be, maybe you don't want to know because then you might be like yeah. foreshadowing a character change. Exactly. Exactly. And you don't want to give it away, you know. So, and in 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 this year, everything that is in the costume from the buttons to the shoulders to the neckline is thought out there's a meaning behind it so nothing is happenstance yeah including even the socks the vests everything the way the tie is tied yeah it all means something so uh you worked in keen peel and uh, you, so my question for you is what was it like being able to make a series of short films from a production designer standpoint it was a lot of work on key and peel we did 86 sketches a season and a season was seven weeks so we shot two a day, ten a week, week after week after week. So you can imagine every single day we're making cinematic sketches and going and approaching it like it's a movie and not a sketch comedy show every single day. But one is in the 1800s, one is sci-fi, one's a, uh, a nightclub, the other one is an aerobics workout set from the 80s. So every day you're doing tons and tons of research and learning and pulling from history to create an authentic look for a sketch comedy show with Jordan and Keegan. So how much time did you have between like to prep for the sketch? Not much. So I the art department and myself would start 3 weeks before we started shooting. Wow. And the writers would hand us a binder with 86 sketches in them and our job was to break down 86 looks, put research up all over the walls walk Jordan and Keegan over and say is this do you like this look and when they would say great it was then our opportunity to get approval and start budgeting it and drawing it and doing 3D renders and have the construction department building them and the dressers and the um, uh, set decorators and the graphics department all pulling them together and they would go on three trucks and we would go to a soundstage or we would go to a location and off they would come shoot them and by lunch one would be done back on the truck 
after lunch, we're shooting the second one, and we would do that in seven weeks, and we would shoot 86 of them. It must be a unique show, then, that everybody be, had to be on the same page together. The costume designer, production director, everybody. Yeah, it was like being in a, a rock, like the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, because the costume designer had to know that I was going to deliver, and the DP right. had to know that I was going to deliver, and I had to know that the art department was going to deliver. There was no time to prep plan, have meetings, sit down, look at stuff. You just had to know that everybody was going to bring their A-game every single day for seven weeks. But as an artist, it must have really helped you kind of grow as an artist, too, having all this different experience. I'm not afraid of anything. Any, any, right now, I'm doing Crank Yankers. We're doing 280 sets that are um, all puppet sets, so they're all four feet off the ground, and every single one looks different. And people, when I start the job, the producer or the director might say, like, can you handle this? And I, I always say, if I did Key and Peele, I could do anything. So, uh, we'll dive right in. What is the biggest challenge of trying to do a feature-length film every single week on Episodic TV? I mean, it's exactly that. We're trying to squish all of this hard work and detail into a broadcast schedule and make it look like a feature film every week. Like, that's exactly what the challenge is. So, um, yeah, I mean, we are not short on talented people in this town. It's so great, and that's what helps us get it through, but... Yeah, and we set the bar really high. That's probably on us, but like, it looks really great. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the big episode, the Kalon War. Yeah. What was the biggest challenge for you trying to do that two-parter? Um, I think the biggest challenge was really just getting what the vision was going to look like um, because we obviously had never done it before, and we didn't, we didn't want to look like Star Wars, and we didn't want to look like Star Trek. We wanted to look like the Orville. Like, how would the Orville do a battle? And uh, Brandon Fayette and Luke McDonald really helped, you know, help us, you know, see it. And our previous team from Pixamundo, they were able to, you know, pump out just versions of different things and get in front of Seth. And Seth was like, yeah, that looks great. You know, John Gassar was able to say, yeah, this is what I was thinking. And we were able to really just, like, bring the team together and just come up with this vision. And everybody's input was able to make it into the Orville battle. It wasn't, it wasn't a ripoff on anything. It was, like, our own organic you know, battle that we made from our <laughs> love, sweat, and tears, and hard work, so. Yeah, what is the process of collaborating with the production designer and costume designer? Because you all do have to be in sync. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's tons of meetings, tons and tons of meetings. Um, but absolutely every minute of those meetings is a useful tool to help us get even further into the process. Um, because we're such a visual effects heavy show, and we are really putting the show in space, um, we have to know what the other what the other departments are doing. Like, you know, what is Art Deck doing? What what is Locations doing? I mean, all the way up to like, what is Crafty serving for lunch? Like, <laughs> uh, we just we are a, we're very much involved in every single aspect because at the end of the day, like, we're, we're the last people that touch it before it ends up on the screen. So we have to know where their heads are at, where what their plans are, what they're going to do on the day, so that we also are able to translate that into the final product. Uh, I'm also, I love, one of my favorite parts of the Orville is some of the sh more dramatic scenes, the more intimate scenes, which of course has a lot of visual effects, but pull it back. I specifically love the episodes with the gender reassignment thing. Yeah. How do you approach those kind of like intimate scenes like the court trial or something like that where you got to augment it, but you don't want to take away from the drama? Yeah, I mean, it's honestly, we try to make it look and feel like the show, like any other part, whether, you know, we're going to Alara's planet, whether we're blowing up the Oroville, like... 
all those things have to have the same amount of detail and attention that, you know, the little things do of, you know, what color are the people on the Rigor 2 planet wearing? Like, they should wear, like, more of a boring color. We should be the vibrant ones. Like, we... We have to pay attention to all those details as well because it does help tell the story and helps put our fans into the world that, you know, they want to watch and want to be a part of. All right, we do have some graduating students. Uh, what kind of advice do you have who want to go into visual effects? Oh, my goodness. Um, I, when I graduated CSUN, I had no idea what visual effects even really was. I saw a green screen and I was like, cool, what is that? Um, and I got into it through... Uh, connections from my school actually and somebody had reached out to see someone and said hey we just need somebody that's very tech savvy and you know knows how to edit we're going to teach them everything else like who do you trust and I was like is that me and so I went and I interviewed at Fuse they brought me on and I really just I love being a sponge and just like absorbing so much information and it was just it was such a great like part of the industry to be a part of because like there's just so many things to be a part of that you know when you're in school you're you want to be a director you want to be a producer you want to be a writer you know you want to be like the top four things but you don't know about like you could do award shows you could do visual effects you could do games you could you could be an actress like for youtube channel like you could do anything um so for visual effects specifically i just say get in there do something do anything um take any job that's available even if it's you know for a youtube channel or if it's for twitter or for anything just like get involved because the industry is always changing and there's so many different technologies that are being used all the time just youtube and google everything get involved just like get in there dive in there because if you don't somebody else will so, yeah. well, thanks so much for talking to us what uh what's the biggest challenge for you trying to produce a feature-length film every single week <laughs> it's just it's it's a challenge for everybody, i got to tell you. Uh, well, I'll tell you. The, the big advantage we have on this show, which I haven't seen on a lot of shows I've worked on, is that we have all the scripts right at the beginning of the year. So, for example, in Identity Part 1 and 2, which is our big space battle, which is playing here at The Experience, uh, that had such a big space battle. We started working that at the beginning of the year. And I think it was Episode 9. Now, again, if you're getting the scripts one at a time, you wouldn't have time. So everybody has a chance to get ahead. So the wardrobe people go, oh, we got a new species of creatures coming up. What are they going to wear? What are they going to look like? The prosthetic guys can get ahead. So because we get the scripts early, we can, we can do that. We can produce what looks like a feature, but really it's a television show and on a television show budget. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the big identity parts one and two, which you directed. Yes, yes. Uh, what, was, what was the challenge for that one? What did you have to approach? That was your, that was your biggest it, it battle was biggest. ever. And, and we knew right from the beginning, like at the very beginning of the season, Seth virtually gave them the Beatles scripts and said, this is the game changer for us. These two episodes is, is going to be, you know, instrumental for us. It's our two biggest shows because that's where we, we introduced the Kalon as the new enemy, which... No one saw coming, including me, by the way. And so, so he gave me those right away and said, you know, let's, these are ones we got to like already be way ahead on. So, so even though I was directing episode, the second episode and the fourth episode, I think, even though I was directing those first, we were always working on these two episodes because we knew how big they were. And we had to introduce, you know, what the Kalon planet looked like, which was one of our biggest challenges. Uh, so, yeah, we got ahead on that every... Every department got ahead on that really quickly. Not to mention, we had one Kalon outfit for Mark Jackson, and suddenly we had to have 40. So that alone was a massive, massive challenge for the wardrobe department. But dramatically for the cast, it must be good knowing, because you had the Isaac relationship, 
relationship yeah, and all absolutely. that stuff. Knowing all that in advance, able to map out the whole season dramatically. Yes, yes exactly. So it really helped knowing that for, for the cast, even though they didn't know it the year before. And the writers said they always did. So it's kind of a great little secret that they had waiting for everyone. And I think we loved it too because I think you know there were we, look we have an amazing fan base we love our fan base and we love that they love the show like we love the show but but I think those two episodes had a there were pe people on the fence with us not sure if we were real sci-fi yet and I think after those two episodes those people jumped over the fence and they're with us now and realize that we can do sci-fi with the best of them right now and and that that space battle that my visual effects team were nominated for for an Emmy for uh, was just unbelievable. They did such an amazing job. I, you know, I'm a used by Sci Fran, and what I like though is some of your the more social themes you're exploring too, yeah. like the gender reassignment exactly. thing storyline. How was that for you developing that storyline over the past two seasons? Again, you know, when I first came on, I only did one episode the first year, and and I did the Krill episode where they go on the Krill ship and. You know, at the end of it, they kind of have to kill all the krill, but then the kids are left over, and there's that great moment at the end where she goes, you've just made more enemies by killing their parents, you know? And so there's that moment where you go, well, this was funny, but now that's not funny. That's a serious kind of look into our world right now with all the wars we have going on where we just keep making enemies of the same people by killing their parents. And so, so all of those kind of social themes are really exciting to me because that's great storytelling. And so you have the sci-fi, you've got the comedy, and then you've got the, the social relevance, which, you know, it'll, it'll, during almost every episode has something in it. So, and that's kind of a, that's a real throwback to the old Star Trek, because that's what it was about. It wasn't just about a bunch of people flying around in a spaceship. It was, it was about our world, and maybe we can make it better by exploring some of these themes and, and revealing some of them for what they are. And so... That's what the writers do well, and that's that's been Seth's mission from the very beginning. I did like the also towards the finale with uh, Kelly and the the memory. Yeah, that, that was a very interesting character. Like she must have really enjoyed playing that part. You know, she did a great job. I remember. I mean, I was there when we shot it, and we would have to constantly change her back and forth yeah. because within the same scene, she had to go get changed and come back. So you know, I saw her as both both characters. But I remember when I finally watched the whole episode for the first time, I went. This is like two different people. Like, this was amazing what she did. And so even though I was there watching it, I emailed her right away and said, you know, Adrian, this was an incredible thing that you did. You were two completely different characters, and she pulled it off. It was great. Well, thanks so much. Good luck with this season. We look forward to seeing it. So what is the challenge? We asked the, all the artists the same question to start. What is the challenge of trying to do a feature-length film on a weekly basis? The fact that you actually asked that question, you already know what the challenge is. So that's amazing. It, it's doing a feature film on a weekly basis with a feature director who, who cares about it as much, if not more, than you do, which is a high bar because we match each other in that. And, you know, just trying to push the envelope of the material and also, like, we're building a universe, so being respectful to that, that's, that, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a real, it's a real trick sometimes because, you know, we don't cut corners narratively, performance-wise. So we'll work these things to death till we get the best every inch out of every piece of dailies. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk two different ways. Obviously, you have a lot of comedy. I mean, Seth MacFarlane. Yes. So how is it kind of editing and pacing the comedy episodes or a little more of the comedic well, sequences? The way I do it is, I mean, I have a, I have a background in, uh, I, have a, well, I have a background in unscripted and I have a background in a little, I've done some comedy and some drama. So I've been able to sort of uh, get the, the, the timings down. Um, so I, do, I lean into whatever the scene is. I lean into sort of the editorial stylings of that scene 
you know, sometimes it's comedy and, and it's banter between Scotty and Jay Lee. I'll pace it up. If it's, uh, you know, if it's a more dramatic scene, I just play straight as a dramatic scene. I don't like, I don't worry about where the narrative's going to take it. I mean, we have amazing actors. We have, you know, we have guys like John Cassar who, who do an amazing job directing. And so I know that, that, that if we let things breathe, the actors are going to bring it. And we have great, you know, and, and great material to work with, so. Now, the flip side is then you have an episode like Identity, yes. two-parter, yes. which is different pacing and actually, you know, almost broke format in a lot of ways, like action-packed. Right. So what kind of approach is that when you kind of go into a, a more battle scene? Well, or That's an interesting one because that, um, you know, that started with a great script from Brandon. And he actually, if he was here and he, he told us, like, I wrote, well, I wrote, the, I wrote the script. I didn't think you were going to, like, it was the first, I didn't think you were going to shoot it all. Which is hilarious to me, and then of course, thank God, Kassar did uh, did all the live action stuff. But it was one of those things that, like, we kind of had loose story beats, and working with you know me working with Brandon, who who put together previs, who then I would then like give him notes, and then Seth would throw in ideas. It became this giant organic r rotational thing where we just built this amazing battle. We were lucky to have Brooke Noska, our VFX producer. And it just evolved into this massive, uh, you know, interwoven battle. And, uh, you know, we added like, you know, 200 shots in posts. So, um, yeah, and we're all, all of us are responsible for it in different parts. It's like one big organic building up a battle scene. Same thing happened, same thing happened in the finale, too. Well, that's what's interesting about editing work with the VFX, because a lot of our students are not aware of how that relationship is so Integral. So can you talk a little about collaborating with the VFX department? Yeah, I mean, well, in general, you tend to collaborate with the VFX department. We are all we are all bonded in in, uh, in fire. So it's a very organic process. Um, they they're constantly backing me up to get me out of scrapes because I'll do some compositing or some things that I need to do to like change the narrative or fix something, and um, they allow me to be part of their. You know, I get to, you know give notes on the previs and sort of like tailor the story or if I need to add, to add a shot to tell something narratively they'll they'll make it up for me but they have you know Brandon and uh, Brooke and they're they're so brilliant at what they do it's only elevating the material so but it's a very cyclical thing and then of course Seth is the big cycle around that and then you know if we're lucky enough it's a John Kassar episode he's another cycle so we're all we're all swimming in the same direction uh, so I don't want to, I know you're they're all your children but is there any particular episode you were most like uh, proud of, or like, wow, this one, you know, was really special? I'll tell you, happy refrain. That's that's going to be in this. I mean, the first season it was into the fold. I know they both happen to be Claire Isaac episodes, but but season two, happy refrain. That's where I felt like the show went to a very went to a special place. I mean, like you know, we, we tossed off. There was a seventy-five piece orchestra playing, uh, you know, sound of music, um, uh, singing the rain. I mean, so uh, you know. That, but just just about the the multi-level character stuff and seeing Mark out of costume and getting to watch him do his work, I mean him and Penny brought it. I, did, I just have a real soft spot for that one. But they are all my babies. I love them all differently. Yeah. Well, John mentioned that it's one of these rare shows where you get all the scripts in advance. Yes. So it does give you a little different. Normal TV doesn't allow you. You don't even know where the show's going sometimes. How is that for you? You think as an artist knowing I can kind of now join the arc of the show or the that characters? Is exactly what it is. Is that I is that. I have an idea. It helps you inform your decisions. And even if, like, the last scripts, you know, maybe there's a draft they want to do, but, like, 90% of it, 80% of it, you know where the story's going. So every little minute decision you're making creatively is to help drive that narrative towards your, towards the end. It's nice to know where the end is because then you can sort of, like, re, you can uh, reverse engineer your way towards that. 
So. What was your reaction when you found out that Kalon were going to be the villains? Oh my God, I was like, I, it actually took me a while to figure out if Isaac was, for lack of a word, word BSing. And, and then I was like, all right, we're going to lean into this. I was excited. I thought it was a brilliant twist. I thought it's like, it's the kind of stuff that I love. I'm trying to compare it to something. It's, uh, you know, it's like in Battlestar Galactica when they jumped a year ahead. Yeah. They were in the reboot. Yeah. Where you're like, what the hell just happened? But then you're like, you lean into it, and it's like the greatest two-parter in the history of uh, television. Well, thanks so much for joining us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.